Hi, thank you for downloading this podcast, Conversations with Dr. Rick Bowler. Enjoy! Hi, this is me and my dad, Dr. Rick Bowler, talking about institutional racism. Hiya, Dad. Hiya, Bibi. First of all, what inspired me to get a move on with this podcast was I heard a brilliant interview with someone called Munro Bergdorf. Have you heard of her? No. Um, So I'm just going to read her Wikipedia entry here to give you a bit of a background and then just to see what you think, really. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. Munro Bergdorf is a British model who came to public attention in August 2017 when she was employed as the first transgender model to front a L'Oreal campaign in the UK. Bergdorf attracted further public attention following an article in the Daily Mail highlighting Facebook comments that she, a mixed-race woman of white English and black Jamaican heritage, had made about white people. These comments, which included the claim that all white people were guilty of racial violence and that the white race was the most violent and oppressive force of nature on earth, generated accusations that she was racist against white people. In response to her comments, L'Oreal fired her from its campaign and Facebook removed her posts from their website, regarding them as being in contravention to its rules against hate speech. Bergdorf said she also faced online harassment, much of it a racist and transphobic nature. So in the interview, it was about what had happened in her experience. Mm. And I think it was quite a frightening one for her because she, it mm. affected her job, mm-hmm. everything that she did really. And yeah. um, I mean, she's learned a lot from it. But she also talked a lot in the interview about institutional racism and she mm. believed this was a big problem. Yes. No, I actually know the case. Oddly, I didn't know the name, mm. but probably because I'm not so up on what might be seen as popular culture so that's a dilemma but I, I do know that I read about that I remember reading about her at the time yeah so I think what she was making was a, a, a macro point and I think the difficulty we've got is that because race is not spoken about in any critical way on a daily basis we don't really have um, any detailed examination of the good and not good things about British history the real and not real things about British history. You know, we don't have that as part of our daily discourse in a multicultural society. Then what we end up with is quite often a, a lot of white nation fantasies, as Gasson Hayes called them uh, in relation to Australia, but I think it's a very much a, a reality in terms of Britain. So we end up with these sort of white nation fantasies. We end up with a lot of whiteness as ideology hidden, so we, we don't really get to examine what white supremacy is, we don't really get to examine how white supremacy uh, worked in the old days and works in the new days, how it might have transformed itself and become much more deeply embedded. And so I think she was making a a valid point. My general other view, and I might, might have some argument with her at the edges really, is that I don't know whether one can say all of anybody is of anything. So I think that um, you know, one of the problems is that we do again get caught with the issue of whiteness as an ideology, how that ideology is structured into our institutional systems of governance, how whiteness as culture operates, and, and how that plays out in interpersonal relationships. But we also need to recognise, of course, that there's movement and agency and change across all different communities. 
So I would, as a general rule, stay away from the argument that all white people are um, in the same way that I think all black people are. It's a particular kind of speech form that isn't necessarily helpful. What I would say is I think a white society seems to have created a, a situation where people find it very difficult to get involved in this discussion and therefore operate entirely from what I would call very limited knowledge about their own racial histories and their own racial realities. And that is structured into the system. That's it was an interesting interview. I'll, I'll dig it out and um, hmm. I might put it in as a reference if okay. anybody else wanted to listen to it because she talks then about a lot of... She ah. goes into black theology and, and explains it quite nicely. Which yes. was, a, I thought, a lovely and succinct presentation of the problem as a whole of institutional racism. Just in Dr. Rick Bowler's words... What is institutional racism? The institutional processes are forms of organisation, forms of governance that are structured into the society, but they are always in relation to the dominant ideology. They're always influenced by the ideological thinking of those in power. It's structural processes outside of ideologies. So, and therefore in the institutions of the states or in the institutions of the criminal justice systems or the policing systems or the prison systems or the court systems or institutions of education, primary, secondary, further and higher education, these processes of forms of discrimination that happen in society. But if we talk about institutional racism, then what we're saying is that at the very beginning, in the process of setting up these institutions, these institutions were set up to collude with dominant ideas which are about the ideology of those in power. I've changed some of my questions format this time to be questions that you might ask if you're thinking about philosophy for children. Okay. These are the kinds of questions we like to use. What, in primary education? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Um, So it's sort of philosophy for children. So I've based them on something called the thinking keys. And sometimes it's nice to explore the alternatives and thinking about it in a different way. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know how these questions are going to work, but we'll... Okay, let's play with it. So how has institutional racism changed the world? Okay, so how, the question is how, how has institutional racism changed the world? Well, that's a great question. Let's talk about different kinds of worlds. Think about how white world has understood what institutional racism is. It was really only in the 1960s that a definition of institutional racism came to the fore. And that came to the fore in relation to really around the civil rights movement and then Black Panthers. And so what you had from America was the view that racism was not just an interpersonal problem, but was institutional to the state. In terms of Britain, the first time it was accepted by the state that Britain might be institutionally racist was after the murder of Stephen Lawrence in 1993. And some years later, because the Tory government at the time refused to have an inquiry into Stephen Lawrence's murder. It was in 1997, when New Labour got into power, that they instigated the Macpherson Inquiry. And the Macpherson Inquiry's findings, um, 1999 and 2000, identified 
the policing services but other services as institutionally racist. So there was an agreement in the British state that institutional racism existed. So in answer to your question, how has it changed the world? The first thing to recognise is that for a considerable length of time, probably two, three hundred, maybe four hundred years, certainly from the outset, institutional racism wasn't really understood at all by white world, by the, the dominant aspects of the world. And, and therefore it changed the world because it was hidden. What is it that really drives the system? What's the central and core purpose of the social system? Not what particular politicians tell us it is, or what particular kinds of media tell us it is, but actually if the system is institutionally racist, but for hundreds and hundreds of years it denies this, it denies it and denies it and denies it, then actually what you really recognise is that the problem we've got is it is deep and it is entrenched and we need to not just go, we're now recognised as institutionally racist, now we've solved it. What really needs to happen is now there needs to be the same level of attention paid to it as there was absence. And, and we're at the beginning, we're at the early steps. Think about it as a cup, okay. and it's an invention, and think about how it's changed the world in that sense. So even hidden and not being accepted and not being identified or understood, it's still there. Right. Yes, of course, the cup may already always have been there, but in fact, most people weren't allowed to drink out of it. In fact, most people were only allowed to clean the cup for others. Then what you're saying is change the world, because it's made a majority of people who live in the world not access Yeah. Something. So now that we have the cop open, everybody can see the cop. The cop now is 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 visible. Actually, what's happened is that lots of people have decided they want to change the nature of the cop. They want to drink different things. They want to rejoice in utilizing the cop in different ways. They actually want to take the really really expensive cops that are hidden away and actually were stolen from people in the first place because yeah. actually people did have cops. What we now come to realize is that everybody did have cops. But actually what happened was that some people took the cops from other people and stole them and hid them away. And then may even have said, look, we invented cops, yeah. when in fact, actually the cop was invented elsewhere. It's that kind of complexity, actually. It is it takes a sort of it's a combination of forensic attention and care, educational empathy to work between those two. What have I said, Penn? Okay, so you said a pen in the same way that the very first people who taught people to write were then written out of history. Well, people have been painting caves. Indigenous people had language. Indigenous people wrote. But what we get in our education system, to some extent, certainly in Britain, in the main, I'm not saying this is every day in every way, but as a dominant sort of way, we get a particular kind of view about writing. You know, it goes back to the 18th century or 19th century or something, and it seems to me that everything was invented in Britain, uh, was made in Britain, was uh, written in Britain. And what's your evidence for that? It's written down. And the evidence <laughs> well, who for that. It down? Yes, and who wrote it down? And actually, all the other things that were written and have been written in lots and lots of ways, you know, thousands and thousands of years before, you know, when Britain was living in a very dark period, is ignored. The other aspect of this is a sort of philosophical question as well as uh, practical questions, in my view, that they are also about whose knowledge is seen to be important. Is there only one kind of way of knowing? Well, no, there isn't only one kind of way of knowing. And, and all that stuff of Trump and the Confederate flag and white supremacy, and it's just regurgitated nonsense 
it would be much the better to get educated people to sit round a table and hear that there are other kinds of knowledge. Reading recommendations by Dr. Rick. Uh, Media Diverse, uh, that's a website worth going to, Media Diverse, uh, Diversity. Freedom Dreams by Robin Kelly. Another book that is important is Patricia Hill Collins and her book Black Feminist Thought. Uh, the latest edition I've seen is 2009. It's an excellent overview about knowledge, consciousness and the politics of empowerment. Robert Beckford's work, it's a video documentary. Rennie Edo Lodge, 2017. Why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. It's a stunningly uh, brilliant book. Really takes you through uh, many of the things that we've been talking about on our podcasts about what is white privilege and what kind of social systems reproduce these things or what kind of social systems do we need to develop that uh, challenge them. For people who want to know more about institutional racism, um, Stokely Carmichael and Charles Hamilton in their book Black Power, The Politics of Liberation. So that was the first ever definition term was coined and used in 1967 and then was defined by Macpherson later on as a different, you know, he defined it in a different way. So what would the world look like without institutional racism? Oh wow, that's fantastic. Well of course that is a dream that people have dreamt for a good length of time really. Actually there's a really brilliant um, professor of African American history, Robin Kelly, who writes about this stuff, Freedom Dreams he calls it, and he amongst other people, write and think and help us to recognise that for long, long periods of time, people have dreamt of freedom. It's, it's hard because I still hold on to uh, a kind of um, socialist dream of seizing back the commons, of eliminating the privatization of everything, um, of trying to uh, create community, the beloved community as, as far as I know, uh, in which violence is not the mediator building this beloved community, which is one in which there's no forms of oppression, no forms of subjugation, no forms of kind of direct uh, produced inequalities, you know, that we can actually do this. It is probably impossible for us to know what it looks like if so many things have been absented, if so many things have been hidden, if so many things have been denied, if so many things have been lied about, then it's really difficult to know what it looks like when none of that's there. I guess if we were to listen to the heart of indigenous people and listen to what they say, people like Winola the Duke and, and others, then we might get an understanding of what the dream might look like without racism. You can't do away with institutional racism without doing away with the ideologies that underpin it. At the moment, what's happening is that the far right, one, they have a lot of money behind them, so there is often a lot of millionaire and billionaire racists who want to fund this, but we also have very angry and very ignorant, violent people who want to lead it so we have them in Britain um, and they spend a lot of time on the streets harassing people and organising small groups of very angry and I saw um, a video, is it Owen Jones? Yeah, where well, he's been harassed. Work, yeah. 
being surrounded by thugs. These are people that, what I would say, are ignorant, violent racists, really. They're white racists who have a desire to speak, but they always see things through an incredibly narrow lens. They're incredibly small-minded and very narrow. And actually, how can we dream our way out of this? Well, as we dream our way out of it, what we have to do is recognise that there are plenty of people that want to keep it going. And so, in order to dream our way out of it, what we need is the combination of governance, people, elected members of parliament, elected um, representatives of people in democracy, to make this clear and make this verbal and make this a mission to actually get rid of hate, take the heat out of hate, but we also need to think about this in terms of our global responsibilities, global warming, how do we treat indigenous people, how do we protect our rainforests, how do we protect our neighbours, how do we look after 10-year-old children who are coming across the channel in a little boat. Mm-hmm. I think we'd have yeah. other ways of dealing with social and human relations. When Obama got elected, there was a great deal of talk amongst many educated and not-so-educated um, white people and others who wanted to talk about a post-racial state, that race no longer mattered because a black man could become president of the United States, blah, 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 right? So that we had reached the pinnacle of our equality. Um, institutional racism was only accepted in the British state in 1999. We're only in 2019, just arrived at it. So in 20 years, we've moved from a racist state to a post-racial state. That's nonsensical. But it tells you something. It tells you that maybe people want to find a way to a post-racial state. Well, if they do, we have to get rid of racism. So if you could invent one thing to remove institutional racism, what would it be? And you're only allowed one. Only one thing am I allowed. thing. Okay. The one thing that I want is I'd want Robert Beckford's brilliant recommendations in primary, secondary, further higher education and public education. It's hard to imagine that not long ago, Africans were bought and sold like animals who were enslaved by the British Empire. The final figure of the debt to Britain's slaves is £7.5 trillion. I'm not expecting all of that to be paid. It would bankrupt this country. I think that some of it should be paid back. It should go to wiping off debt in Africa, in the Caribbean, and setting up educational projects that counter racism here in Britain. If you can justify making money out of anything, then, as I've said before, then where do you stop? Where, where does this thing stop? There are ethics and there are basic ways that we as human beings and as a human societies need to think about how do we look after people. What one thing would you go back in time to change that would stop the progression of institutional racism in the world as we know it? Okay, firstly if that's possible. Oh I've invented time travel so you can go back. Okay, so I'll go back and i do that. Um, Well, I don't know, maybe off the top of my head, transatlantic slavery. The idea that we would move people as if people were cargo so that we would dehumanise people to have a system where when we first identified that there was such a thing, we might have opposed it in every possible way and not colluded with it, not made money out of it, but actually realised that there was another alternative social system. Because we still have today slavery, modern day slavery. And it seems to me to be an idea that is only acceptable 
because we think money is more important than other things. Britain did this in the same way that others tried to do it. And so I would go back and have a huge hand of whoever, I don't know, and well, that yeah, said okay. stop. Okay? Since I've invented what? time travel, right. you now have a superpower mm-hmm. to be able to stop mm-hmm. that. Like Geordie Indian Panther, I suppose, <laughs> the Black Panther. If that would be great, actually, because one, I'd quite like the suit, and two, well, two, I'd have to go, I'd have to travel back and interfere with the workings of the people that thought this was a great idea because they were making money out of it and they could brutalise others in order for their own expansion. So who would you invite, let's say five people, would you invite to the table to discuss solving this problem? Oh, wow, okay. That's incredible, isn't it? Well, can I have people who probably clearly clearly have passed away? You can Uh, have whoever you want. Remember, we've got a time Well, I think probably the first person I'd want to have at the table would be uh, W.E.B. Dubois. I couldn't think of somebody who was so brilliant in his time, but was so treated so badly in his time. He, He was an incredible sociologist and researcher. I mean, it's been argued, actually, that he should have been the father of... American sociology. His work is stunning. He was such a um, uh, such a man of stature and, and ethics. So I'd have him. Who else would I want to have? Um, it would be very difficult to not have somebody of the statue of, of Mandela. But of course, I've now got two men sitting around the table. I'd probably want to have Patricia Hill Collins because I think uh, she's a formidable force. I'd like to have Audrey Lord. Uh, she's a formidable force. So that's now four people I've got around my table. And who else would I want to have around my table um, to try and solve these sorts of things and talk about them in different ways? Well, actually, in an odd way, I'd probably want to have somebody who maybe comes from um, a, a different take on it. And so I'm going to be very personal and I'd probably say that I'd want to have my eldest brother because his ability to think about the world and to study it through a scientific frame but to keep a hold of Eastern philosophical thinking, I would look to him for advice. And I think he would be somebody who could help work us through. I'll serve you food. Thanks. (laughs) Final thought. My final thought really on on institutional racism and how we're going to pose it is we need to, all of us, you know, we need to step up a mark and start to listen a bit more to things that we didn't know about before. I think that would probably be it. I think we need to be attentive to the voices we don't normally hear rather than shouting them down. Thanks, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, thanks. About this, I learned so much. Just, you know, we talk about all these things all of the time. But in this particular scenario, I'm having to do a bit of research first as well and thinking about it, and right. I feel like I'm on my, on my own little journey learning right. about all of this. So well, it's lovely. No, I, I need to say this to you, because everybody that's talked to me about the podcast tell me that, of course, they say to me, well, it's really good, but it's because we love your daughter, right? Aww. And I say, yeah, I do too. That's cute. <laughs> hey, thanks for listening to our conversation about institutional racism. I hope you found it useful. And until next time, love each other and don't be racist. Bye. Public information broadcast. Charlie says, don't be racist. Charlie says, domestic violence is bad. Charlie says, misogyny should be put in the bin. Charlie says, we need to not have poverty. Charlie says, people should be paid a proper wage for the job they do and they should not 
have to go to a food bank because companies are paying them so little in such poor ways, with poor conditions at work, that they have to leave their children to go and do another job and then another job and still go to a food bank. That is a system that is wrong. Sorry, Charlie would probably be very angry. <laughs> I think Charlie's a bit more child-friendly than that. <laughs> yes. But you're well, right. Well, I teach, I teach adults, so sorry about that. Sorry about that, we kids. Right? I shall, that's, why, that's, why I, that's why Bibi was born. All the five-year-olds are crying. 